If you have your Bibles, please turn to Luke chapter 8. We're going to read the parable of the sower and the soils. Luke 8, we're going to begin in verse 5. The sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot. And the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock. And as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns. And the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears, let him hear. Down to verse 11. Now, the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while and in a time of testing, fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. And their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. This morning we conclude our study of the book of Hebrews that we began last July. In many ways, the book of Hebrews has been like an extended appeal from this parable to be good soil. Hearers that do not fall away or allow the cares of this life to choke the good seed that God has planted. An appeal to look to Jesus so that we can persevere in his promises. I trust that it has been our collective experience that we have seen Jesus in these pages These last number of months. And as a result, our hope in his promises has grown. Hopefully the picture of our Savior has come into focus a bit more for each of us. That there is more clarity than when we started. That he is bigger in our eyes than ever before. Greater than Moses. Greater than the prophets or angels. He is our great high priest. His work is eternal. Our standing cannot be shaken. Our goal, though, isn't just a greater knowledge of him, but greater affections for him and a more firmly established trust in him. 
Because when we see him as he really is, we are given an invitation to a deeper experience of him and a more intimate relationship with him. That, friends, is why we've been studying the book of Hebrews. I hope as you look back on these last nine months of messages and care group discussions that you do so with fondness. Because you have grown in your appreciation of God's word and and more importantly, you've grown in your love for the Savior. It has seemed to be a common refrain in personal discussions I've had as well as care group meetings I've been a part of that, that Matt has served us well. Hebrews is a bit less mysterious as we go through its pages. And there are practical and encouraging applications that we have walked away with. I hope that's been your personal experience. And as we transition from our time in the book of Hebrews, I I don't want to take that opportunity, that reality for granted. See, this, this book, it makes a claim on us. It makes a claim on us all. Scripture makes clear that we are not to be just hearers. Or for that matter, just studiers. Or understanders. Or appreciators. Or even explainers or defenders of God's word. We must be doers. We must put into practice. What God has given to us. Disciples are called to be doers of God's word. So when we come to the end of a study like this, the primary question isn't, how did Matt do presenting it? Was it a B plus? Two thumbs up? Like the content overall, but some of the personal stories seem to be reaching a bit. Four out of five stars. The parable of the sower reminds us that when God's word is proclaimed, it isn't first and foremost the sower who is under examination. Obviously, other scriptures talk about leaders being examined. Just last week, we we mentioned how leaders will face a stricter judgment. There are no comments in the parable about whether it was an underhand or overhand scattering motion, whether he clumped too much in certain spots. No, his job was simply to scatter the seed, to put the word out there for all to hear. Good seed is required for good fruit, but here it is not the determining factor. The ultimate fruitfulness of the seed was not pinned on the sower or the seed. For the same seed that produced a hundredfold in the good soil was choked out completely in the thorny soil and withered away in the rocky soil. The type of soil is the variable that determined the fruitfulness of the good seed that was scattered. Only one soil received the seed and bore fruit with it. That's a good point for me to be able to add my amen 
to Matt's comments last week. As a church, you are a joy to lead. I am so grateful that God has relocated our family just a year ago so that we could be here and be part of this congregation. I see much good soil here. There is a fruitfulness that is evident as you take seriously, week after week, the Word of God and seek to put it into practice. You recognize that Scripture places a claim upon our lives. You don't sit in judgment of it or of its presentation. I'm really grateful that when we preach, you aren't rating this message against the last five or against some guy on the radio. Really, I'm grateful for that. Instead, you are faithful to ask, what claim does this passage have on my life? What does God want me to do about this? I don't know if you ever think about it or not, but we are amazingly blessed. Even beyond the makeup of our little congregation where many of our most personal blessings lie. We are tremendously blessed. The resources that we have available to us continually are simply staggering. 500 years ago, men were still paying with their lives to see Scripture translated into the common tongues of the day, believing that everyone should have the opportunity for God's Word to be read and proclaimed in language that they understood. This morning, you could sit on your phone and literally have access to dozens of English versions in mere seconds. Not to mention that you could have at your fingertips, more sermons, books, and theological resources than any university, pope, or king could gain access to not even 30 years ago. We have the freedom to gather and worship as we see fit and hear God's word proclaimed week after week after week in this place, in our homes, without fear of government intervention, a gift that still today much of the world does not enjoy. You can use your electronic device to set reminders for reading times, have verses delivered to daily to your inbox, that help you walk through a plan, sites that will even read the scriptures to you. Friends, we are off the charts blessed in the resources that we have available. Matt talked about the trip coming up to Bolivia in two months. I'll be part of the mission team that travels there. And our main ministry will take place in remote villages where the gospel has only gained a foothold at most in the last decade or so, many places, 
much more recently than that. Most of these small congregations don't have their own pastor yet. And they're dependent on one traveling from another village, often on foot for several hours. Which means it may be months in between church services for different little groups of these believers. As I have looked around for resources to take with me to give to pastors there, it is a challenge to find solid theological resources in Spanish and simply unthinkable to find anything in the local Indian dialects of the people that will be around. I'll be preaching in various settings, but what each of the teens on the team has yet to realize is the impact that their testimonies, their sharing of basic Bible truths will have as tangible nourishment and refreshment for those who hunger and thirst for God's word because they have such limited access to it. That's not our experience. We live in a time and a place with an amazing wealth of resources easily within our reach. May we collectively cry out to God to help us to be good soil. For to whom much is given, much is required. We are recipients of the much. So before we wrap up officially our study of the book of Hebrews, let's consider for a few moments, what is Hebrews' claim on me? That's a question I can't answer for you. For most of us, I expect it to be growing in faithfulness in an area that that you've already begun to apply in the last several months. But each of us should ask, what does God want me to do with what I have heard and read and discussed? Is there anything that the Holy Spirit has lit a fire in your soul about? What rises from the last nine months? Above the rest, as you look back on this study. In our time together, has God put his finger on something and not let your conscience let it go? Has he brought conviction to an area of your life and challenged you to do something that seems utterly beyond your ability? Has he brought you to a place of wonder or amazement at his love? And grace. Has he put a particular relationship into your life where he wants you to share the lessons you've learned? There are no one size fits all answers to these questions. So what is God calling you to do? As a disciple of the Jesus revealed in Hebrews. That displays your discipleship. Your love for and relationship with him. As a reminder, we've had messages on Jesus as greater than the Old Testament saints 
greater than Moses, greater than the angels. We've heard proclaimed why we need to listen to him. The value and worth of his great word. We've, we've been considered, we've been challenged to consider the power of God's word. The immeasurable quality of our high priest. We've been exhorted to draw near because of what he has done. To see him as our mediator. To remember him as our sacrifice. We've been warned against unbelief. Warned against drifting and being immature. To take caution that we not fall away. That we not reject God's son. We've been exhorted to enter God's rest. To make our hope sure. To hold on, to persevere, to keep running the race, to exercise faith in what is sure yet unseen, to endure discipline as children, to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We've been encouraged with the faith of the saints before us. We've been encouraged with the perfection of Jesus and the fact that we have come to Mount Zion, not to Mount Sinai. Because we have a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We can live lives that have eternity in view, even in the midst of challenging circumstances. So what does good soil look like for you. Perhaps it means going back to your notes or listening to a particular message again. Has God prompted you to pursue an accountability or discipleship relationship with, with someone that you haven't followed up on yet? Does it mean humbling yourself and asking your care group for prayer or asking someone else for counsel on a particular issue? Is there a topic Hebrews hit on that you need to give more attention to? That you need to devote a period of study to? What is your next step in making whatever God has placed upon your heart happen? Are there passages you simply need to keep going back to? To meditate on because they are a balm to your soul. Are there areas that that you need to commit to memory so that you have them in the moment of need. Personally, one of the more convicting messages that stuck with me the last several months was related to the warning to not fall away. Specifically, the danger of drifting. I was challenged to consider whether I plan to be faithful. Do I have a plan to be faithful? How is that practically reflected in my schedule, in my free time? What resources will I use to, to combat drift? Who else will I involve in the battle? My vocation doesn't make me immune from such dangers. 
None of us set out to drift, which is why it's so dangerous. It happens nearly imperceptibly, day by day. One insignificant compromise at a time. What God is highlighting for you could be totally different. You could be wondering if church is worth it or any of this Jesus stuff really makes sense at all. Others may be absolutely convinced of the truthfulness of everything in this book, and yet God has pointed out areas of indifference and laziness. Maybe you're weary today. Weary from suffering. Weary from caring for a loved one. Weary because you're a parent. Weary because you're still single. Weary because of a challenging job. A particularly difficult relationship. Weary of fighting. Weary of trying to manufacture hope. Some of us are likely craving the glorious freedom that Christ offers, yet running back to the religious bondage that is just more familiar. Though Jesus beckons us to relationship, we are more comfortable with a checklist. God hasn't brought us through Hebrews to give you another checklist. The author capital A, of Hebrews has been placing a claim on you these last nine months. But it's a claim that's based on a relationship that has already been granted, not one that needs to be earned. Looking back, it it can feel like every message has its own unique claim. That can seem overwhelming, especially if you're particularly good at taking notes. Or have a much more effective memory than I do. But the spirit that is within us remembers our frame. Ask him what he wants you to be a doer of from this study. What stands out? He isn't going to give you a hundred areas of need of change right now. He knows how we are made. In his patience and mercy, he'll bring one, maybe two, related things to the forefront of our minds. Because that's what we can handle. Even that can seem overwhelming. But he's patient. He's kind in how he leads us through what he wants us to do. The ways in which he desires for us to reflect him at any given time. He knows who he's dealing with. His job isn't to condemn us, but to conform us to the image of the Son. It's his mercy and kindness that lead us to repentance. Remember the exhortation of Hebrews chapter 4, you can turn there. Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. 
Since then, we have a great high priest. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Friends, we must not allow the call to be good soil and doers of God's word to be separated from the call to draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. This isn't a message about trying harder or being more serious about your relationship with God. The whole purpose of this study has been to gaze upon Jesus, our great high priest who has passed through the heavens for us. That's where our hope is found. He is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, even though he himself was without sin. In fact, he sympathized with our weaknesses so much. That he became a sacrifice for us so that we can receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. Being doers must never be disconnected from our high priest. We don't gain access by grace only to be forced then to struggle day by day on our own. Our ability to be doers is only realistic and our attempts to be good soil will only be fruitful as we draw near to the throne of grace. As we recognize and claim Christ's accomplishments, not our own. That reality is beautifully pictured and prayed in the closing verses of this book. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13. Where the author of Hebrews prays for his readers. For every believer that reaches the end of this letter wondering how can we actually do what God is calling us to do. We read. Chapter 13 beginning in verse 20. Now may the God of peace. May the God of peace. This, this is a prayer not written to the Hebrews, but to God so that the Hebrews can overhear what is being prayed. Can listen in on what is being petitioned on their behalf. And in doing so, the author doesn't waste a single phrase. And so we're going to just step through this phrase by phrase. This letter is written to a 
persecuted church, struggling, fighting to hang on to faith in Christ. A reminder that they pray to the God of peace dials into exactly what they need to hear. They need to be reminded of statements like Jesus when he said, Peace, I leave with you. My peace, I give you. And I don't give as the world gives. Restless hearts find their rest in the God of peace. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. He's a God of peace, but he is also a God of power. He raised Jesus from the dead, sealing his victory over sin and death. This God of peace and power is, is who this prayer is directed to. And he's not some elusive spirit or death idol. He is real. He has acted in time and space, and he continues to act with that same power on your behalf. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, The one that has been raised to victory isn't an unrelated bystander who had this miracle done to him simply so that we could observe God's power. No, he is our great shepherd, the one who cares for and watches over us, the one that had compassion on us. For we were like sheep without a shepherd. Compassion to the point of laying down his own life for his sheep. He is the one that has been raised by the power of the God of peace. By the blood of the eternal covenant. This is the power that this great shepherd wields. This is the reason that the author's intercession, that our intercession, that Christ's own intercession is heard. It is on the basis that we make our petitions. It is his righteous blood spilled for us. That speaks a better word than Abel's, a better word than the blood of bulls or goats. This is a covenant sealed by this blood between God and man that will never be broken. It will never fail. It will never fade. It will never end. It is an eternal covenant. The only hope that this prayer will be answered is a sure hope. Because it is prayed to the God of peace and power on the basis of the great shepherd's spilt blood. So what does the author pray for with such assurance? And 
And I, I find it helpful to point out that it's not just the little A author that we're talking about here. But the big A author, that this prayer has been included in Scripture. It has been inspired by God and preserved not only for the readers of the original letter, but for all of us as well. The content of this prayer, he wants us all to hear and take encouragement and comfort from. Verse 21. So may the God of peace equip you with everything good that you may do his will. Now, the content of this prayer is encouraging for anyone that God is calling to be a doer of his word, that, that is seeking to do his will. But for us who don't have the benefit of knowing the original languages, we need to know that there, there's actually more here than meets our eyes. For the word that the author uses for equip is the same word that Matthew uses when he describes fishermen mending their nets. It's the same word that Paul uses in Galatians when he speaks of restoring a brother. It was used in classical Greek for setting a bone. It means to fix something in order to make it useful. It's much more than just Equip. He'll give you the tools you need to do your job. No, it's talking about taking something that previously has been broken. It's in need of repair. And of coming to that thing and mending it so it can be useful again. How must this have sounded? To a bunch of frightened Hebrews fighting for faith. At the end of this letter, they aren't just given marching orders. Alright, you know what you have to do. Go out and do it. It's much more than just saying God will give you what you need for what you're called to do. It's a tender reminder. That he knows who he's dealing with. We can feel that we're out of joint. Or broken. In need of repair. Friends, he will mend us. And restore us. With every with everything good in order that we might do His will. Everything good that we may do His will. That's what the big A author has sought for this letter to be. There have been foundations laid. There, there's been mending and tender encouragement. There are warnings as well as faith-building exhortations, all an equipping, a mending, a repairing 
for fruitfulness. For those weary and wondering if they can go on. For those thinking they have failed one too many times to warrant another chance. For those simply overwhelmed by where they are in light of where they see God wants to take them. Where he wants to take us as a church. This isn't another burden for drooping shoulders. The God of peace wants to mend you and equip you. He wants to equip us to do his will. Working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. If if mending and equipping us with everything good wasn't enough to convince us that this isn't just a message to try harder, the author adds the phrase, working in us that which is pleasing in uh, in his sight. He's not just fixing damaged goods so that we'll go out and do work we're responsible for. He is working in us and through us to bring about his goodwill. I don't know if I can say it any more plainly than this. God simply isn't interested in your ability to work up what is required to be pleasing in his sight. He does the work. So that we can be pleasing to him. If you're in a place of perpetually wondering, do I measure up? Is God angry with me? I feel like there's always this subtle distance. Scripture would Seek to make it plain and clear to you. What is required of you for you to be pleasing in His sight is a God work, not a you work. Even the ability to hang on is something He is working in us, for us. When the fight in us fails, He never will. Friends, I don't know where we can go for more confidence than this. The power to do what is pleasing to God will always be given To us. Through Jesus Christ. It's a valid question to ask whether we use it. Whether we receive it. And utilize that which he makes available to us. But it's not a question of whether. We will have the power. The ability to do what he calls us to do. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Do you want to be good soil? Do you want to be fruitful? 
Jesus said it this way in John 15. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. No matter what particular point of application God is placing a claim on you for, he isn't calling you to go it alone. He will work in you as you abide in him. And friends, for using broken vessels to display his grace to the world, oh, well, he is worthy of all the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this book that we've had the privilege to study, that we have been able to gaze upon you. I pray that you would fill our hearts and minds with remembrances even now. That for each individual, that that you'll give something that you would have us to take away, to put into practice, to be doers, to be good and faithful soil, where you are allowed to bear much in our lives for your glory we pray Lord Lord things that that you would have us to be sensitive to that, that you've wanted to speak to our conscience about I pray that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to respond things that we need encouragement in and have such wonderful reminders of I pray that you will bring them to our remembrance and that we will again find much reason for hope and faith in you and your promises. And now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will. Working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.